Well, let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 6. We're continuing to work our way through the book of Acts. And I want to say thank you to the council for uh, allowing me to go on this trip that I took and sending me. It was a great experience, and I look forward to sharing more with you. I just got in Thursday, kind of late afternoon, and uh, unpacked everything and need to go through pictures and organize those and put together a little bit more of a presentation. But uh, I just want to say thank you for really a a great experience. In case you weren't sure where I went or who I went with, it was with Mennonite Central Committee, or MCC, as we often refer to it. Uh, MCC is kind of the social uh, humanitarian arm of Mennonite brethren and other Mennonite type churches like ours uh, worldwide found out that they have about 800 to 1,000 workers worldwide doing a variety of things including what we experienced on the border uh, down in uh, we were just south of Douglas, Arizona which is right on the border and Agua Puerto or dark water is on the other side and so I don't want to tell too much because I've got more to share later but great experience uh, now that I'm an expert in immigration issues, you can ask me questions at the door and I will have absolutely no answers for you. <laughs> One thing I can tell you is it's very complex. And uh, anyway, I'll just leave it at that. Well, we want to review a little bit this morning on uh, Acts. We have been uh, in it now for several weeks. And we saw the birth of the early church in chapter 1 or chapter 2. Uh, chapter 1, we see the the gathering of those early disciples with Jesus and of course you know if you were one of those and I was we'd have a lot of questions like what's going to happen next and when are you coming back and what are we going to be experiencing and so on and so forth and Jesus is only he could do would just assure them basically it's going to be okay it's going to be okay after 40 days after his resurrection of being with them in various places and in various ways and, and proving over and over and over again to at least 500 or more people, we know from 1 Corinthians 15, that he was truly alive. He had really risen from the dead. He told them to wait. Now that's, that's a step of faith right there. Waiting is sometimes one of the hardest things we do. Just wait. I mean, when you're a child growing up, it's like just wait until your birthday or Christmas or whatever. And I'm not sure if we get over that all that well as we get older we just maybe learn to get the waiting to come faster I don't know but they were told to wait and they waited another 10 days and then the promised Holy Spirit Jesus had talked about in John 14 and 15 and 16 that one who would help us to abide in the vine of Jesus and bear fruit and grow in our faith and all those things that would be our teacher and comforter and the one who would give us power 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 to live in a world where as citizens of heaven we're going to at times rub up against the realities of being the citizen of any country including the United States of America sometimes it'll go the way of our faith and other times it doesn't what do we do we need power to know and how to live in a culture that does not necessarily embrace Christ at every turn And so, what does that look like? Well, the early church models that for us, and we continue to learn from them. So, when that when that person came in chapter two, the earth was, or the church was born, 
uh, those original 120. And then as Peter went out to preach in chapter 2, and another 3,000 joined, and as we continue to see the church grow in chapters 4 and 5, beginning to meet some resistance from the Jewish religious leaders who saw it as a threat and wondered what's this new uprising and what's going to happen here. And we see the church just continuing to grow and grow and grow as Peter preached and other things happened. And now in chapter 6, they're probably up to estimates would gauge it to be around 15 to 20,000 people, mainly around the Jerusalem, uh, Jerusalem area. Now, if you remember when Jesus said in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, you would receive power and you will be my witnesses where? In Jerusalem, hometown, in Judea, the surrounding area or an expanded area as we travel, as we go about our activities as the people did then, uh, in Samaria, coming up against people who are different from us, wherever that might be, geographically or culturally speaking, and to the ends of the world. And so Jesus' vision for the church was not just Jerusalem, it was worldwide. And he called his followers to have a similar vision, and he calls us today to have the same vision. It's not about us It's about him and his vision for the church and how he wants to use us individually and corporately to continue to build his kingdom. But like with any organization, when we start small, it's easy. Everybody knows everybody, right? Everybody, oh, I'll take care of that. I'll take care of this. But as an organization grows, and in particular the church, as more people come to hear about Jesus come to see what it's all about, and then they choose to follow him, as we've been talking about, and then they grow in their faith, and they begin to go become fishers of people and go and bear fruit. As we just keep talking about the pattern of the early church, there's going to be some growing pains. And part of the growing pains we'll see today were the needs of people. Some people were very familiar to the apostles. Some were culturally and linguistically different What do you do with that? And we're going to gain some insight into that this morning. 1 Timothy, where Ben read, is qualifications for elders and deacons or leaders in the church. And as we think about next Sunday and as we continue to go through the processes we have for a little over 100 years of the church of choosing leadership, that's a very important part of a church life because Leaders give guidance. Leaders help us through those various uh, uh, transitions in the life of a church. So that's an important thing. Be praying towards that, and we will pray about that later in the service. Let's ask God to be our teacher this morning, and then we'll get into our passage. Father, thank you for the time you've given us this morning. Thank you for the privilege of being citizens of heaven through faith in Jesus Christ. And Lord, thank you that you give us opportunities to invite people to to come, to come and to hear, to come and to see. Lord, the fifth quarter was a great example of that once again. And as we anticipate an event tomorrow night with Kitty College, we're inviting people to come and see, come and see what this particular church is all about. Come and see the church in action. And we pray that many there will begin to wonder if they need to come and hear more, come and see more. And then we pray and trust that you would help them to take that step of following you. Thank you, Father, for placing us in this place and at this particular time. Help us to always remember that you are always at work, to willing to work for your good pleasure. You are always on mission. Your vision was for the entire world, and that's never changed. 
And so you want to continue to use us individually and corporately to accomplish your purposes. Help us to line our lives up with your purposes more and more and more. And Father, as we talk about growing pains and we talk about caring for one another, our hearts, of course, are reminded of the loss of the Peters family and, and our, our church family. We thank you for Donna and her constant desire to share the good news of Jesus with others and how she did that so effectively. And so we just commit them into your care. Comfort them, Lord. Fill them with that living hope that we read about in your word. And as we gather later to celebrate her life, may it bring glory to you as we know she would want. Thank you for our church family. And thank you for the good work you've begun in it. And that you will continue until the day of Christ Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Growing pains produce certain things. Uh, They can produce tension, like who's in charge and how are we going to do that? But they can also produce opportunities. And the opportunity we'll see here, first of all, is for shared leadership. Up to this point, the apostles, those original 12, well, not the original 12, because one had to be replaced, Judas, after he took his own life, was replaced. We saw that in Acts chapter 1. But as the apostles continued to minister to the people, as the church continued to grow, over time it outgrew the ability for the apostles to care for all of the needs of the people. And that often happens. And so the apostles had to, in a sense, reproduce themselves or perhaps let go of some of the leadership of the church because they simply could not do it themselves. They had to determine what their priorities were and then allow others to take some of the responsibility so they could be freed up to do what they were called first and foremost to do. So shared leadership is the first thing we notice here in verses 1 through 7. In those days, we don't know exactly when those days were. We don't have a calendar to follow along here. But as the church grew and as it went through some of those growth pains, in those days when the number of disciples was increasing, 15 to 20,000, perhaps even more, here in chapter 6, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. Now, Keep in mind, this was not a, an early welfare system that was forced upon the people. As we read through the book of Acts, we're going to see times where people sold things, such in, in chapter 5, we saw that in chapter 2, where they sold things to care for the needs of others. Again, some have tried to use this to prove communism or socialism, but the difference is the government tells you you're going to be communistic or socialistic, where this is a voluntary caring for others by using the resources God has given you. It's one of the reasons we take offerings, why we ask for special offerings at times, because needs arise for the ministry aspects of the church, whatever that might be. And so it's a, it's a free will situation. And this is an example of how the early church cared for one another. Not because they had to, but because they wanted to, because they loved the Lord and they wanted to express that love by caring for others. Now, you may wonder, well, who are the Hellenistic Jews and the Hebraic Jews? The Hellenistic Jews came from more of a, a, a well, a non-Jewish background, particularly Greece and, and, the, and the Gentile world was part of their influence. And so as that 
uh, as that grew and as they, these people came to Jerusalem, they had to be uh, accommodated, if you will. The, the people from the, the uh, Hellenistic background were probably part of what was called the diaspora or the dispersion. Now the main dispersions that we think of happened in 722 BC when the Assyrian army uh, took over and in 586 BC when the Babylonians took over and scattered the people around. And as they took people from Jerusalem and took them to other nations, many came back when the temple was rebuilt and they resettled. Others stayed away. And so they grew up with a lot of the culture and the language of those, of those cultures they were in, spread out around that Middle Eastern area. But in their later years, some of them decided, you know, we're going we're gonna to come back to the, the home, so to speak. Uh, we, we saw this a lot when we lived in Kansas. Uh, Hayes was becoming a regional center, and many people were coming off the farms and moving into the bigger communities, and in some ways, Jerusalem was kind of like that. I'm not suggesting they built homes for the aged there, but it was more of a place where perhaps they had friends and family that they could live with in those later years, and particularly the widows who depended upon others in many ways for their care. Well, the Hellenistic people came with a variety of language. They could speak among themselves, But when they got to Jerusalem, because the predominant language was perhaps Aramaic or Hebrew, there was a language barrier. The Hebraic Jews, of course, who stayed more in that region growing up with the culture and the language, they could communicate particularly with the leadership. So you you can see kind of the perfect storm happening. All of a sudden, the leadership of the church, which is raised in one culture and language, is trying to minister to a variety of people, some that they may not understand, literally don't understand because of their language, but also culture. Well, how do they do that? And so other Hellenistic people who were coming from Gentile backgrounds were getting a little, a little concerned. Hey, these people are being overlooked. What do you do? Do you just say, well, tough, tell them to fend for themselves, or do you come up with a solution? Well, in the case of the apostles, they realized we need to do something about that. So the twelve gathered, verse 2, all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Now, that waiting on tables, when we think of waiting on tables, we think of uh, waiters or waitresses. That's not the point here. Waiting on tables probably was more of an allusion to the idea of caring for people financially and otherwise. Waiting on tables was a reference to the marketplace where money exchange took place over tables. And so, yes, it may have been a table in the sense of distribution of things that people needed, but probably more of a reference to the total person. And so as what they're saying here is that our first priority really needs to be what God has called us to do, which is to teach and to preach the word, to pray, to see, give oversight to the growth of the church. But we need others who can take care of the particular needs of people who have chosen to follow Christ, but have some very specific needs. And so they did that. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you. And seven was a a key number in Judaism. So again, cultural things are coming out here. Seven would be considered enough to conduct business, if you will, in a given community. 
Seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit, who are controlled by the Spirit, who are Spirit-filled, that are demonstrating the fruit of the Spirit in their lives, if you will, and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the Word. Now, on the part of the apostles, they had to also be willing to give up some of the leadership. One of the growing pains that any organization can go through, including churches, is especially in its early days, as churches are planted and grow, it's hard sometimes for the original leaders to let loose of the reins, if you will. One of the things we did Sunday morning, we left quite early. My flight out of Bakersfield was at 6.10 in the morning. Um, Aren't you glad I didn't call you before I left? Well, some of you are up way before then, but when my alarm went off at 4 and I started getting ready to get to the airport and so forth, I thought, man, this, I'm glad I'm not a dairyman and have to go out and milk cows first. But uh, so we head to the airport, we fly into Phoenix, and, and the whole group convened there, and then we, the first stop was Axiom Church in uh, Peoria, Arizona. Axiom is a fairly young church still, about five, six years old, I believe, maybe a little bit older, planted out of Copper Hills Church in Peoria, uh, probably a little over a hundred people. They meet in an old uh, lumber yard that they've renovated and turned into a uh, place of worship. Uh, Gavin Linderman used to be a college career pastor at college uh, or at uh, Copper Hills, and he was the original church planter. But as that church has grown, they've had to, you know, reproduce leadership. Gavin can't do it all. His worship pastor can't do it all. So any church, particularly new ones, have to begin to let loose of the reins, but also select key leaders that can help carry the load. And this is what we see happening here. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. And all of these men came from non-Jewish backgrounds. So they understood the culture and they understood the language. So that was key. They realized in reproducing leadership, let's not just pick people that are just like us. Let's, let's make sure we find people that understand the need of the current church and the growing pains and find a way to incorporate them in leadership so they can help lead the way and care for the needs that are before us. So the word of God, so uh, they presented these to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. Of course, praying was symbolic of God's anointing and praying for them. So the word of God spread. They were freed up, the apostles were, to do their primary task, which was preaching, was to teach, was to pray. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Priests from the Jewish background. They were beginning to see the church grow. They realized this is more than just some offshoot from Judaism, some sect that started and this guy Jesus who supposedly rose from the dead, oh, it'll go away. Well, no, it never went away and it will never go away. Jesus began a movement that is the most powerful movement on the face of the earth, and we, through faith in Christ, are a part of that movement. The apostles knew that to keep that movement going, they had to reproduce themselves and release some of the leadership of the church so that others could help share in that. Now, many scholars see this as the beginning of the first deacons, even though it doesn't call them deacons, the what they did and the, and the uh, job that they did uh, definitely, um, uh, in a sense, began to uh, 
provide a, a pattern that, that we still follow today in caring for the needs of people. Let me just share what one scholar says, talking about waiting on tables. He says it's literally to serve tables is what that word means. This does not refer to being a waiter since banking of the time was done by people sitting at a table. I had referred to that earlier. To serve tables was a figure of speech for handling financial transactions. While many groups use this passage as a basis for the office of deacon, there is, there's not a, the title is not given at this time. However, the Greek verb to serve is the root word from which the English word deacon comes from. So again, it's somewhat of a... I don't know if I'd call it a proof text, but definitely a pattern that we would probably follow today. Leadership is an interesting thing. As I have been in that role for a number of years now and, and have tried to grow in that and learn from others and continue to develop as a leader, I'm always interested in stories of, of leaders and how they do certain things. Many of you, of course, are familiar with John Wooden, longtime coach of UCLA, multiple national titles, a solid Christian man who just simply coached young men in the sport of basketball but was more concerned about their character, their life after basketball than just, you know, on the court and winning titles and did that very well. Well, author Robert Morgan wrote a book about the life of John uh, Wooden, and one of the things that came from that is that John Wooden learned a lot about leadership from his own father. John, he, he's an older man now, and his father grew up during the days of horses and buggies, as we were talking on our trip about, you know, flying places and getting in cars and all the different changes and realizing, you know, some of the people that we had met on the border setting coming from all over the Latin America countries come from areas where development has not hit them as much as it has here. But he told a story about when he was growing up in Indiana, they would have big gravel pits and the, and the companies that needed gravel would often pay local farmers to take their teams of horses out, pick up a load of gravel and then take it to wherever they needed it to be. Well, John said one day his father was out at the gravel pit and there was a very uh, young man, a young farmer, who was uh, trying to pull a load out of the pit. He had two big, strong horses, but the man himself, the farmer, was young and inexperienced. So he started doing what young, inexperienced men did at that time. He started yelling. He started cursing. He started doing anything he could to motivate those horses by whipping them. And the horses just stood there and just kind of went forward and backward, forward and backward, didn't really do anything. So at one point, John's dad looked at the situation and walked up to the young man who was getting, you know, increasingly frustrated and said, can I lend a hand? And I'm sure the young man said, sure, you do whatever. You can shoot him if you want at this point. <laughs> so John's dad walks up. And here's what John said. He said, Dad started talking to the horses, almost whispering to them, stroking their noses with a soft touch. Then he walked between them, holding their bridles and bits while he continued talking very calmly and gently as they settled down. Gradually, he stepped out in front of them and gave a little whistle to start them moving forward while he guided the reins. Within moments, those two big plow horses pulled the wagon out of the gravel pit as easily as could be, as if they were happy to do it. 
Wooden took this away that stuck with him all through his career of coaching. He says it takes strength inside to be gentle on the outside. A lot of people want to be leaders. Sometimes people think leadership is just this glorious thing that is just a high point all the time. I must have missed that part somewhere along the line. <laughs> There's a lot of privileges and very good things to being, being a leader, but there is a certain burden to it too. But one thing I've grown to appreciate as I've been in various settings is working with people who can gently and encouragingly encourage me and others to do what we do. That was part of what we experienced in Mexico, people just encouraging us to carry back to our churches what we were learning there. It takes strength inside to be gentle on the outside. And where does that strength come from from a Christian, for a Christian? It comes from God the Holy Spirit. God the Holy Spirit, who if we are filled with Him, if we are given our lives over to Him, if we have given Him control, which is what filling means, He will begin to fill us with a gentleness and control the strengths naturally that we may or may not have and use them to lead in however he chooses to do that, in whatever role he chooses. In some ways, all of us are leaders. We just may play various roles in the life of the church or our family or our businesses. Growing pains often produce shared leadership. They also, at times, though, produce strong opposition. We see that opposition growing in the life of Stephen. Now, Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, through the Holy Spirit, of course, performed great wonders and signs. God used him in miraculous ways among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen, but they could not stand up against the wisdom of the Spirit. They could not stand up against against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. Stephen, who we will learn more about in chapter 7, and it's a pretty long chapter, so I chose to stop at the end of 6, but he's somewhat introduced, was opposed by the freedmen. The freedmen. Now, who are those guys? Well, many believe they were former slaves of Rome that were freed up at some point. They did their debt to society, did their debt to the government. They were freed and they chose to follow, uh, they chose to follow uh, through the, become part of Judaism. They were converts to Jews, Judaism. And so with that then, they began to form their own synagogue that kind of reflected that, that conversion experience, if you will. When they came back to Jerusalem, they had come from this background of being free, and all of a sudden they, they see this new group beginning to form, and they began to think, hey, wait a minute, we just embraced this not that long ago, and now we're being told it's different, it's wrong, what, what, what's going on here? So you can see where their opposition began to occur. Now these people, I think we have, do we have a map from uh, earlier? If not, you might have one in your Bible there. Okay. No map at this point. If it popped, there it is. All right. A little bit difficult to see, but the, the very bottom of your map there is northern Africa, and that's where uh, Cyrene and Alexandria would be that, we, that they referred to. So some of the freedmen came from there. Also, some came from Asia, which is kind of that darker spot about dead center there, kind of just in a general sense. Others came from a place called Cilicia. You ever heard of Tarsus? 
You ever heard of Paul or Saul? That's where he was from. He wasn't a freed man, but that's what his home was. He came, of course, from a Jewish background. So that's where these people are coming from that are being referred to here uh, in this particular passage. They opposed Stephen. They didn't like what they were hearing. They thought he was taking away something they had found in their new freedom from the government, and he was the one who was, in a sense, leading the way against them. But they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, We have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and they brought him before the Sanhedrin, that group of 70 elders within the Jewish system. They produced fault witnesses who testified, This fellow never stops speaking against his holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Now, the question may be, well, what was Stephen saying that got him in such hot water? In Exodus chapter 34, we see Moses exhibiting a similar look on his face as he spent time with the Lord. As he would go and meet with the Lord, they say his face was shining. He eventually put a cover over that. The radiance of Moses' face is what my Bible says. Chapter 34, verses 29 through 30. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the covenant law in his hands, he was not aware that his face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. When Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses, his face was radiant, and they were afraid to come near him. There was something about him that was different, and they weren't quite sure what to make of that. Stephen may have been referring to things that we learned when we went through the book of John. John chapter 1, verses 17 to 18. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Not that grace or truth was not part of the law, but the emphasis on the law was very much on things to do. There were a lot of rules and regulations as we've talked about. No one has ever seen God, but the only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. So, once again, Jesus is claiming, John is recognizing Jesus as God. The Jewish religious leaders did not like to think of that, and they opposed that. And those, the freedmen, perhaps this was kind of a new thing for them. They thought, what? This guy claims to be God. That's against Moses and the law. And he says he's going to tear this temple down. Well, in chapter 2 of John, verses 18 through 22, you might remember reading this. And the Jews responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? The Jews wanted signs. They wanted proof in the pudding, so to speak, that someone really did represent God. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scriptures and the words that Jesus had spoken. Perhaps this is something that Stephen was referring to as he spoke to the leaders, as he spoke to the people. 
Matthew chapter 26, we read these words as we think about what Jesus said that, in a sense, got him in trouble, eventually led to his death, but he conquered death by rising from the dead. Matthew chapter 26, verses 59 to 61, we read these words. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus, similar to way, the way they were bringing false evidence against Stephen, so that they could put him to death. But they did not find any, though many false witnesses came forward. Finally, two came forward and declared, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. We know also through the book of John that Jesus made it very clear who he was and perhaps Stephen was making that clear to the people. He may have reminded them in his teaching and in his preaching and Stephen is one who although in a sense although a deacon and a deacon we think of them as being servants and caring for people he was a fiery deacon and he was a preacher he was an evangelist and he wanted to tell people about Jesus and he may have reminded them of what Jesus himself had said as we see recorded in the book of John and we went over the I am statements the I am God statements because that's what I am means Yahweh self-existent one the one who is God I am the bread of life I am the light of the world I am the gate for the sheep I am the good shepherd I am the resurrection and the life I am the way the truth and the life and I am the true vine it could be that Stephen in relating that to the people realized very quickly They didn't want to hear it, particularly the Jewish religious leaders of that time who were more concerned about power and prestige and controlling the people than setting them free through faith in Christ. Opposition will come. You see, when the church, any church, ours in particular, perhaps, when the church begins to threaten the accepted beliefs of a community, particularly when those community beliefs do not line up with the truth of Scripture, Those who oppose it can sometimes use deceptive means to hurt the testimony of believers. Now, I'm not aware of anything that's happened in the life of our church, but I know that our culture has changed a lot, even in my lifetime. And so as we face the truths of what's happening, in a sense, out there, the things that we are committed to in here as followers of Christ will not always line up with what the world says is okay to do. And when it doesn't, It doesn't mean they're going to go along with it. They may oppose it very strongly. It's hard to know what the future holds, but it's good to know that God holds the future. Shared leadership. Shared leadership in any organization, but in particular the church, is one of the keys to growing that organization, and in particular the church. But it can come with opposition both inside and outside the church at times. Growth brings pain, growth brings changes, growth brings challenges, and facing those and making important decisions is part of the life of a church. I want to take a few minutes before we close with our last couple of songs just to pray for our church leadership. And I'm going to ask you just to bow your heads and close your eyes, and I'm just going to prompt you with a few things to pray about. Uh, I'd invite the worship team to come up, and so as we conclude this time, I will close in prayer, and then we'll sing our closing songs together. So let's pray together. You're welcome to pray out loud if you'd like. If you want to pray silently, that's fine too. But I do want to just take a moment or so to pray for the leadership of our church in particular. 
So let's take a moment as we bow our heads and close our eyes, as we think about the leadership of the church, I would ask you to pray for our pastoral staff, uh, for myself, Pastor uh, Brent, and also as our search committee is searching for our, our pastor of worship and family ministries, just pray for guidance there. Let's take a moment to do that now. Let's take a moment to pray for our, our council members. Each one plays a vital role as many are chairing boards in our church. Many are on uh, multiple committees and boards giving guidance and leadership to them. And as we come to an election this coming Sunday, let's pray for that, that God would guide that and that he would appoint the people in those positions of his choosing. Let's pray for the council now. And then finally, let's pray for our deacons. Our deacons play a vital role in caring for the members of our church, those that are hurting at times, those who have lost loved ones, as has happened so recently now with the Peters family, as the deacons uh, uh, exercise their ministry in the life of a family like that. Pray for them as they care for various families and individuals that face uh, just some of the challenges of life. And so, Lord, we thank you for hearing our prayers. Thank you that we can come to you, that, that throne of grace in the name of Jesus, that high priest who has gone before us, who has opened the way through his death, his burial, his resurrection, and through faith in him and him alone. We become citizens of heaven. We become part of your kingdom, your church. Help us to never take that for granted, Lord. We thank you for the way you have uh, structured your church. You've given us a pattern to follow, and particularly in the book of Acts. As we see leaders choosing other leaders, as we see them caring for the needs of people, may we continue to reflect that in the way you have structured us here at Shafter MB. Thank you for each one here. Thank you for the time of worship you've given us. May we continue to be faithful to your call as we share in leadership and as we at times face opposition, even in our own communities, to the truth of who Jesus is and the way he calls us to live. We give you praise and glory and honor. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.